Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So are we, are we doing video? Uh, no, I've got it on audio. Are you okay with audio? I am because uh, I have... Uh, radio audio is better for me because I have a very radio face here. Well, I have Kevin. I have a face totally for radio, so maybe we should do a radio <laughs> show together. So I um, think it's perfect. Kevin, first off, I want to introduce you, and then I want to get into your most recent book, and then I want to dive into maybe five thousand of your prior ideas. But you have been with the let's call it the digital revolution from the beginning. You were. Um, uh, involved with the Whole Earth Catalog in the 80s with um, a, 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 an interactive environment that I was actually a member of called The Well in the late 80s and early 90s. And then, of course, you were a co-founder of Wired Magazine. Your blog's widely read. You, you, you're you all over the place. You had an amazing book, Cool Tool, Tools, a few years ago. And now you just came out with a graphic novel that blew me away called The Silver Cord. Uh is there anything I'm leaving out of the intro? I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out a million things. I write um, big idea books as well um, that have no pictures, only words. And the last one I wrote was called What Technology Wants, which is kind of a theory of technology. And what does technology want? I didn't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> um the short answer is uh, technology is actually not just a human invention. It's actually a cosmic force. And what it wants is basically very similar to, to the things that we want. It wants to increase complexity, diversity, sentience, uh, mutualism, and many other things. And so um, a lot of what happens in the world technologically is actually inevitable. You know, it, it's funny because – I didn't know this about you, like this idea of uh, technology as being almost a separate cosmic force is something you believe in. But I picked up on this 
very strongly in the graphic novel you just made. And I had no idea you were into comics or graphic novels. It's a big passion of mine. But this graphic novel I just read that you wrote was really brilliant. It's called The Silver Cord. I highly recommend every everybody read it. But I, I want to ask you about this. Do you think technology singled out like the human race as something that uh, should benefit from technology? No, I think um, maybe another way to explain what I think technology is, is that it's an extension of the very same self-organized forces that run through the universe and then through the earth and that made life and made life more complex and um, that evolved minds and that that same force accelerated is the technological force. And so it's, it's sort of like evolution accelerated and um, it's, and it's happening throughout the universe. So there's probably a bazillion planets that have 13 life forms that have their own technologies. And my suggestion is that a lot of those technologies will follow a similar form. I mean, that, that just, that they will converge, so to speak, and that we'll have a, normal sequence of technology that we'll find on other planets that they have electricity before they have computation and you know etc and so um because we actually had the same history on this planet pre prehistory on the different continents when they were separated and there was no um communication between them say you know south america and north america or no immediate communication um the the, the pattern of of uh, inventions like pottery sewing domestication all had very similar sequences and so, even even in modern times even in the past century you see people working on you know electricity or the automobile or the airplane in different countries without even being really aware of the work of the others right that simultaneous invention is actually the norm and um uh there were 23 other people who invented the light bulb besides edison or actually before edison and um uh, and so basically, if Ed, Edison had not invented the light bulb, there were there were 23 other people who, who were inventing it at the same time. Edison just got the um, mixture of the um, particulars correct. So so the light bulb was inevitable, although the particular kind of light bulb, whether it was DC or AC in a vacuum or not, or whether it, whether it was carbon or tungsten inside, none of those were predictable or inevitable. But an incandescent light bulb a light from electricity that was inevitable and we know that because so many people as you say all over the world are working at the same time and that's true for every single invention that we know about and so so you've been kind of involved with uh sort of online communities and the growth of online communities since the beginning i mean what 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 started your passion and interest in in the online world and and when i and you know, I could ask this to anybody because obviously we're all in an online community now, but you really were were like among the first handful of people involved in an online communities. Well, that's I, I was a hippie. I, I, I was a I was a hippie and I had kind of taken the hippie take on technology, which was it was the it was the man you wanted to kind of keep technology at arm's length because at that time. When we thought of technology, we thought of kind of, you know, um, steam engines and chemical plants and factories. And it was all very industrial and large scale and not at human scale at all. 
and there was a sense that you wanted to really um, uh, have appropriate technology, keep it really small and close to human scale and organic farming and you know yurts and stuff like that, bicycles. And so I I had bought into that and I was living that kind of a lifestyle, and um, and I was spending a lot of time. Uh, I you know I'm a college dropout, so I went to Asia and um, was hanging out with people who had very very little and very minimal technology. So I kind of knew what that life was like. And um, when I came back, I, I started to become interested. I started to write about uh, travel because I spent a lot, most of my adult life up to that point traveling. And that was the one thing I knew about, knew about, knew about, knew about. And, and um, I uh, had an opportunity to join one of the very first computer online networks in 1980. And um, what was it called? It was called Eyes E I E S, and it was run by the New Jersey Institute of Technology. It was an experimental online forum. It was coming about the same time that you know CompuServe and all these others were there, and bulletin boards. Um, but they, but 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 this uh, was run by Murray Turoff. And he was trying to explore what happens when people come online. What what does what's the social dynamics? What's the sociology of being online? What uh, how do you make value from it? How do you organize the conversations? And um, I got invited online because I was writing about it as if it was a new country. So I was a, I had a travel column in New Age Journal, which was a magazine, monthly magazine. And I was running the the, the, the travel, you know, monthly the travel uh, column, and I decided to write about online in the bulletin boards and stuff like that as a new continent. And I got invited on to Eyes, and I was going to visiting the bulletin boards where this kind of online stuff was just emerging. Um, the way the bulletin boards works back then was that you actually had to dial each one up individually on the phone and. They were oftentimes running people's bedrooms, and they were very small. You know, maybe hundreds of people might be overall joining, but maybe only 10 are on at the same time. There wasn't much simultaneous interaction. It was all asynchronous. You'd leave a message. They would read it later on. But um, the experimental uh, conferences like EYES, you could have a lot of people on at once, and you could start to explore what would happen then. I was writing about this as if this was a new country. And when I came on to these early bulletin boards and the early online um, communities, I recognized that this was a different face of technology. This was very – it was like organic. It was, it was like Amish in a sense of there was absolute, true, authentic community on this online place that was all very technological. So even though you were typing and – uh, the words, there was no pictures. You just saw words and they were green and the, it was um, rapid. They, they would just scroll up. They wouldn't even stop. It was just, they were just scrolling streams of, of um, words that you had to read very fast. But even then you could feel that this was a different face of technology. This was much more human skills. It was much more uh, humanistic. And, um, from that moment um, where you took the computer and plugged it into the telephone, computers didn't really interest me very much. 
telecommunications and this online thing was tremendously powerful. And I think that's where all the, the dynamism and the, the power came. A, a standalone devices, computers are kind of boring. Well, it sounds like what fascinated you was community. I mean, yes. for basically for 100,000 years, humans, your only community were your neighbors or maybe most recently people you went to work with. But now all of a sudden you can pick and choose from people all over the entire world who are going to be the people around you that you love and trust, but you may never see them. Yes, and but there was something else going on. It was community, but there was also collaboration. And so, so I mean, I, 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 I think we felt then that you could do things with people that you weren't really that you didn't know or strangers. I mean, there was the. I mean, that's the whole thing about like eBay. Is eBay really a community? Well, it's a kind of a marketplace where you're trading with people that you don't know and will never really interact with again. It's, it's hard to call that a community, but there was certain there was a certain sense of that's collaboration or that's a. Um, I mean, it was closer to like it's a kind of a civilization. It's 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 civilized. It's it's interacting. Well, all, although community, after it reached a certain uh, amount, uh, so you know, often breaks down. I think we're we're not used to uh, again as a as a species. We're not used to communities of greater than let's say 150 people. And you right. see, like on message boards, uh, often it quickly degenerates uh, uh, very quickly. Yeah. That's kind of the famous Dunbar's number, which was a name of a professor, anthropologist who studied primitive tribes. And he noticed that um, around 125, 150, that was sort of the natural limit for the size of a clan. And um, the idea was is, is that um, there's something in our – that we're hardwired to kind of have know those people's names and have a kind of a, a relationship in our buffer with them. And that beyond that number, it's very hard to 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 maintain a kind of close relationship with more than that people. So th th we see that online too, and even in organizations, there's also a shift in the dynamics of an organization when they get to be 120, 150 people. It it changes, and um, I think we do see that online. But it's, I think, the power that this technology brought was allowing us to to have new kinds of relationships, new kinds of community relationships, new kinds of collaboration that w was not possible before. And sometimes it was because we had larger numbers and sometimes it was because it was the speed and sometimes it was because of the span and sometimes it was just because there was a, a facility or a new um, power that was unleashed that, w that we simply couldn't do um, face-to-face -face when we were adjacent to each other. Well, you, you wrote an article a few years ago that had a big impact on me, and I think it had a lot of big impact on many people because it related to concepts ranging from what you're talking about here with community to even online marketing and business. And it was your, your article about how uh, if you have a thousand true followers, uh, you could essentially – I mean, your your basic concept was you could make a living, but there was a lot more power out of that as well. What, what what's the what's the concept of the thousand true followers or a thousand true fans? Yeah, the thousand true fans. And so this was, um, this was sort of uh, start off as a theory. It was it was a theoretical sociology. It was this idea that uh, if you looked at the mathematics of um, of uh, making a living, um, that 
when you uh, disintermediate um, your your service and your product, meaning that if if you can sell what you're making, whether whatever whether it's music or photography or uh, um, a film or a book, whatever it is, if you can sell it directly to your audience without having to go through a studio or a publisher, and then you, you're keeping basically the, all the income that you revenue that you get from that. And if you had, um, if you were making something where you could, on an annual basis, um, have sales from each of your fans of like uh, fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or something on that level, then the numbers that you would need to support yourself would be in the range of a thousand. So if you had, you could produce hundred dollars worth of good stuff every year and you had a thousand fans pay for it, that's that's a hundred thousand dollars a year in terms of revenue that does include your expenses and and, 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 and to have, make that work you have to i would say well you you need um at least a thousand true fans and i would define a true fan as someone who bought anything you produced that if you were a band they would drive 200 miles to see you play if um, you're a photographer, they would buy the hardcover, the softcover, and the prints. Um, so so the, these were true fans who were basically your biggest fans who would buy whatever you produce. And so selling to them $100 a year would seem feasible. And so that's the idea was if you're a duo and you need more, you just multiply it by two. But the general idea would be that in the range of 1,000 fans, you didn't need a million. You didn't, you didn't have to, uh, you know, Get up to uh, even a hundred thousand. Just a thousand true fans would make you a living. And the other thing that I want to emphasize is that it would make you a living and not a killing. I mean, it's it's the difference between um, you know making a fortune versus making a living. And so sometimes these kind of businesses are derided by the VCs as a lifestyle business. But I think their lifestyle businesses are way underrated. And um, I agree because a lifestyle business ultimately uh, buys you freedom. You, yeah. you you have a lifestyle, and for your life, right. life is short. <laughs> you know exactly right. I mean, I, I think we should be you know singing the praises and trying to emphasize and encourage uh, you know making a living versus making a fortune. I mean, in in the VC world, they actually define a startup as a business that can scale, that has this sort of infinite upside. That's what they define a startup as. When obviously any kind of business that you start is a startup, but a startup that is not going to scale up, they, they they're not even they don't even want to think about. And um, I think um, that leaves off most of the opportunities in the world, which is to to make something that's going to generate a you know a a, a lifestyle livelihood, a livelihood r- rather than a fortune. I mean, the, I, oh yeah. sorry, go ahead. Okay. No. no, you know, this brings up two very interesting things. Um, one is uh, you've been writing about this for, I would say, 30 years. When I go back and look through all of your, your work, essentially the idea that we no longer need the gatekeepers to make a living. And a gatekeeper might be a boss, might be a corporation, might be college. I mean, you mentioned you dropped out of college. Might be uh, a book publisher, a TV, a movie studio or a TV production company. All of these gatekeepers that say no to us, we don't have to listen to because we don't necessarily need millions of people watching our TV show. We can have a thousand people buy a product off of us after watching a YouTube video. Right. Exactly. 
And I think that um, you, you don't have to ask permission. I mean, I think this is sort of one of the lessons from the Internet is that you don't really have to ask permission anymore. You don't have to. Um, uh, you, you can just sort of start something. You can kickstart it. There are so many ways to, to do something, to find fans and, and people who are appreciative. But in the end, you have to kind of be making something of value. You have to bring you have to bring something to being out of nothing that is that people find valuable. And if you can do that, then I think um, you have a chance to keep doing it. And uh, that is that is the advantage that this technology has made. The disadvantage is, is that because it is so easy, there's, there's just a lot of stuff around. And in fact, I think what happens with people, and here's the other side of the thousand true fans, is that while that is true, that's mathematically true, that, that, that if you disintermediate and you have direct interaction with your fans and that you need in the thousands of them to have a livelihood, the, the, the challenge is that you have to deal with your fans. You have to kind of, you have to do the marketing. You have to, um, you know, ship stuff, whatever it is. You have to do, you, you have to run a business. And there's a lot of creative people, artists, musicians, whatever, that actually don't want to do the business. Right. But then there's opportunities that are created. Okay. I'm going to create a shipping company for artists. So yes. then I'll have a thousand true fans among artists who don't like to ship. Right. Exactly. So and what I'm saying is, is that um, there's actually is a role for those intermediates. And another one of the roles is, is that uh, when you have 6 million new songs released every year, um, the issue, the, the question of what are you going to listen to next um, becomes really hard to, to solve. And so we come to rely on some of those intermediates to help us guide us through that, cornucopia of options because everybody is producing it. I mean, if I, I, I kind of, I kind of extrapolated out the trend of the number of songs released each year. And I think it was by 2050, there'll be everybody on earth will have produced a song. You know, it'll be like, there'll be like 6 billion songs made a year. But it's the same thing with books. Like, you know, a, sure, exactly. a, a few, right. a few years ago, I think it was 2009, 500,000 ISBNs were registered. But last year, uh, 15 million ISBN numbers were registered. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. so, and you talk about you, and, and I've written about this before. The, the the beauty of self-publishing and the power it gives you. But then combine that with the thousand true fans. And I look at a book like Cool Tools. That it, it would have been very hard, I think. And I don't know if you self-published that or did that through a I publisher. Did. Okay, no, so I, I self-published it. That would have been impossible to publish through a publisher. Yes, it would have been impossible to publish through a publisher, and also impossible to do it at the speed I did it. So, so, so the, um, I was finished that book in, um, uh, beginning of September. And I said, I wanted to have it, you know, on Amazon for Christmas. And the publishers would say like, you mean like Christmas, like next year. Yeah. Right. Like, no, forget it. Christmas in two months or three months. And they were saying that is just simply impossible, but self publishing, I did it. And so, um, Part of it was so part of what you get is control, but also speed, because believe me, the New York publishers are incredibly slow. I just don't understand it. They're operating on another from another century speed. Um, I've handed in books completely, utterly done. And then a, a year later, they'll 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 be in the bookstores. It's like, what were they doing in between? 
Um, well, and and then there's the fact that the bookstores themselves, right. you know, can only fit ten thousand books out of the fifteen right, right, million. Right. So, so I have a, I have a contract. I got another contract. I mean, I, I I both self-published and I go to New York publishers still, and um, I still have a contract with Penguin right now for another book. And I have to be honest with you that I think the main reason why they gave me the contract of the book was because I have fans and followers. I have an audience. Book publishers don't have an audience nobody goes to bookstores anymore and so if you are interested in in having a book published by someone else what they're really mainly interested in is not even the title or the content of your book is but do you have an audience if you can show them that you have an audience they'll publish your book because they don't have an audience and that's but, what they're really looking for let me they ask you authors who have audiences let me let me ask you this and this is this is the the second thing that's related to the thousand true fans which was written about much later by uh your successor as an editor at wired chris anderson when right. he talks about the long tail right it, it seems like the short tail is disappearing in the sense that you're never going to have a last episode of seinfeld again where 60 million people watch your show we're, we're moving into a world where it's all groups of thousand true fans you know it's hard to expand beyond that like 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 even you know the age of the you know million selling books is even going away i mean el james of course sold more than a million books but there's not that many of that anymore yeah it's it's i'm not sure that it is going to go away but it is a very short head i mean there, there will still still be a power law operating where there will be. I mean, I think actually think the Gingham style YouTube video, the billions, shows that um, the, there's actually the that the, the highest counts will be higher yet because we mm -hmm. have a global audience, and so. Um, but 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 there's only one or two. I mean, it's a very it's a very short head, um, and then at the other end, at the tail. You actually don't want to beat the tail. That the tail is only the long tail is only good for the aggregators like Amazon and Spotify and or, or the Netflix. lifestyle businesses are or good the at lifestyle, the tail. But, but you actually want to be in the middle. It's called the hard middle. You want to be in the middle area, which is not where you're not like. This is where I want to locate the true fans, which is you're not just selling one copy or a few copies to a really tiny audience. You want to have a middle size. And and I, I tried to do some research, which was actually very hard to find. I was so surprised with the um, Small Business Administration and others, or even some professors, to try to find out what the sort of average customer base was for like a mom-and-pop business. Say you had a restaurant or a dry cleaner or you know, kind of a brick-and-mortar one. And as far as I can tell, the, 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 the customer base is in the low thousands. It's like maybe 5,000. 10,000, let's call them like regular customers. And, um, you know, it, it's maybe an order of magnitude two more than, than 1,000, but it's, it's not any more than that. So it's between, you know, it's between 1,000 and 10,000. And that is, that is the place you can have these lifestyle businesses. You don't need a million customers or a million fans. You need more than 10 or 100 or probably a thousand, but you don't need like you need only maybe five thousand, ten thousand. That is an achievable, doable number for for most people. You can kind of imagine doing that. You can kind of imagine maybe knowing a lot of those people. And so right. I think 
that we don't want you don't want to be out at the long end of the long tail because that's that's really rough. But you want to be kind of in this middle. And the beauty of the of the internet is that it facilitates improvement at all scales. It helps the the you know helps the hits. I you know, gingham style it. That's a that's that was possible because of the internet. It helps the long tail people who are satisfied with um, reaching the hundred people who really um, are interested in jellyfish aquariums, and it also allows and amplifies the hard middle for the first time. Um, but I think that area is generally ignored by most people. They they think about you know the solo person at the end and the big hits, but it's that it's that mom and pop lifestyle middle territory that I think is actually the most un, unserved and most interesting. Well, you know, you um, you talk about in the article Technium uh, that now is still a good time. You know, a lot of people think it's, oh, it's too late. I missed yeah. the whole internet boom. I didn't start a company in 1990. Uh, but you say by 2044, everyone's going to be saying this about 2015. Yeah, so, exactly. And Louis, yeah, no, I, mean, I, I was I was around when you know when um, you you for free you could register any domain that you wanted. I mean, literally, it was it was cost nothing. They were all available, um, and you know, and people look back and say, "Oh my gosh, would it it must have been incredible to be alive then or to doing business." And now, you know, all the fields are taken. Everything's occupied or squatters and um, all the easy low fruit have been picked, and um, the thing about it is, is in 20 years from now, or or 25 years from now, when we look back, the most important invention of, uh, in 25 years hasn't even been invented yet. Well, what do you think? Where 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 are the areas you think? And I, and I think I know the answer from from some of your books. But where where are the important areas you think are these opportunities that? Uh, will be discovered and and you know taken advantage of. Well, I'm very bullish on AI, and I think that the formula for the next 10,000 startups in, in the next couple of decades is going to be take X and add AI to it. Just because AI is going to be a service like like electricity, you just you'll you're not going to make AI. You're just going to purchase it from the AI provider, whether it's you know Google or whoever. Like like Amazon Web Servicing or hosting, you, you're just going to buy it. And just like last century, tremendous uh, number of businesses were made by electrifying things. They, you know, they took a vacuum cleaner, you made electric vacuum cleaner. You took a motor, made electric motor. You made um, electric telephone. You everything was. You take something, you add, you, and you electrify it. And now we're going to take stuff and cognify it. And um, there is this huge, huge room because because nobody knows how this works. No one knows, you know. I mean, it, it's just wide open. But what we do know is that there's almost nothing that we can't change or improve or make in some way new and valuable by adding artificial intelligence to it. But let me ask you about artificial intelligence because it seems like in most cases, what we used to consider artificial intelligence is really just very sophisticated statistics. So for instance, speech recognition is all statistics or, or, um, faster processing power. So like when they made a, a computer chess beat the world chess champion, they actually took out the intelligence, but added processing power. Right. Yes, exactly. So AI is, 
is anything that doesn't work. So as soon as soon as some AI aspect is working, we we, we stop calling it AI. We call it <laughs> machine learning then. And so um, uh, just today there was a paper released by Microsoft where they have their image um, captioning, image recognition AI that will look at a photograph and tell you what's going on in the photograph. Well, or it'll tell you what objects inside it. Um, that actually is performing better than humans right now. Okay, and so um, what does it see that humans can't see? Well, in other words, it's more accurate. Yeah, like in other words, if if um, th there would be something, say say if a photograph where it wasn't really clear what it was, um, maybe it's obscured by something, mm -hmm. um, and the AI actually was able to determine what what it was, a, a, a one or two percent better than it was. Like the the AI was four point two percent accurate. Or, or had an error rate of only 4.2%, and the humans had a 5.7% um, mm -hmm. inaccuracy. So, 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 so but uh, I mean, again, it's not that their AI vision is better than humans, but that's just one little micro sliver, but showing that how fast this is happening. I mean, you might have seen what Google was doing with captionings where they'd show a picture, and the AI would say, well, that's a, a picture of a cat sitting on a sofa under beside a window, or that's two pizzas on a stove, or whatever it was. It was it's, it's incredible. And um, so so now that's not called AI. That's that's image recognition algorithms because it works. Right. And so um, uh, yes, that's exactly what's happening. And and that's what that's my point about this is that this is going to be boring commercial. Um, service it's a it's artificial smartness um and it's going to think differently than we do and that's its main advantage but what it can do is things that we can't do so there so this image recognition at facebook can recognize any human on earth okay you give it a picture of a human on earth even if it's not on they're not on facebook and it will tell you who it is now no human can do that we're very good at, at recognizing faces, but we can't hold all the faces of humanity in our mind. But this AI can. You know, and it's interesting. This this relates. I actually want to get back to the book Cool Tools, but I'm going to skip forward to your book that um, I don't even know if you've released it yet. Uh, thank you for sending me an advanced copy. But the Silver Cord, I thought was it, just... it is released. It is available on Amazon. Oh, great, good. So, so. I encourage everyone to get it because it was just such a beautiful story. The art is great. Uh, you wrote the story, I guess. Uh, you, it was you wrote the script. Um, I wrote the story. We had some script writers from with Hollywood background, with some some who worked on Pixar, um, and I co-wrote uh, the script. And the the artists were I guess there were two artists involved, right? The, the, there was the, actually more than two. There was probably there was. Three artists and uh, uh, six colorists. Wow. So anyway, the, the story was amazing. And just to uh, summarize it in a few sentences, it was basically uh, a robot that was about to become artificially intelligent due to a quantum computing chip. So this would be the first, art, you know, fully artificially intelligent presence. And then it turns out that uh, uh, an evil or or like dark angel would be trying to enter into this portal into the world as opposed to the way normal uh quote unquote angels would enter into the world by being born as humans so it was like sort of a, a allowing another portal 
of another type of being to come into the the earth and that's how you were separating out artificial intelligence from from human intelligence and i thought that was a really interesting concept and it brought in this religious uh kind of undertone that i didn't know that you had in your work yeah so 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 the, the uh, part of this was inspired by my work on a campaign of a, about 10 years ago that i started with stuart brand um, inspired by some billionaires to um, try and catalog all the species on this planet. So, so much to my surprise, and probably to most people's surprise, we estimate that we only know about 5% of the living species on this planet that we've identified. That, that Most of them are the ones that we haven't identified are small. There's probably no very few birds, and there's, there's a few mammals that we don't know about. But most of the Things we don't know about are, are small insects and, and smaller, but there's like so bacteria. Did you count like bacteria that's on the body? Counting bacteria. This hmm. this is these these are eukaryotes. These these are you know um, multicellular animals and um, or plants or fungi, and we um, uh, don't know about them. So so I got involved in trying to um, start a campaign to in 25 years to catalog all the living species on this planet, feeling that. We just owed it to, to to ourselves and them. If we went to another planet and discovered life, we would try to do a systematic survey of life on that planet, but we haven't done it on our home planet. And thinking about that and the multiple species that we have on this planet, I imagined in this fantasy world of a celestial thing that there would be like not just one kind of angels or two kinds, of, but there, there would be a million different kind of angels, different species of angels, and they would all sort of be um, – they would all crave embodiment. And so part of this idea is, is that this world that we have in right now, this that the, we're kind of like in the ultimate VR world that is heavily subsidized. It would be very expensive to, to, to make something as incredibly immersive as what we have right now. And we kind of don't appreciate what we have. And the angels, these millions of species of angels are all looking down. They all want to have embodiment. And they're all very jealous of humans and kind of a little um, sick that we kind of take for granted or waste this this ride that we have. And when they are sent, these spirits are sent into human bodies for their ride. Um, they're 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 trained. When we come here, kind of given a moral compass and stuff, because you have a big obligation when you're. It's kind of like driving. You're you're in this body that could. They can hurt people, so you have to kind of have a basic idea of right and wrong and whatnot. And so the idea was that um, if we started to make conscious robots, we already have intelligent robots, but if we make them conscious, if you don't have the moral guidance, then um, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And in fact, people like at, at, there's a group at Google who's already writing ethics for the auto-driven cars, computer-driven cars. They're trying to teach them ethics because you have to have some sense of ethics when you're driving this very powerful machine. And I think we're also going to eventually have to, like children, give a moral compass to our AIs and our robots because you can't just unleash that kind of free will without having some kind of of training and education. Well, well, let me ask you because it's it's an interesting thing that I mean, we started off the interview, and um, you know, you mentioned technology as almost like a cosmic force driving sentience, and that sounds like a very positive thing. When does it be? When is there a tipping point 
where tech, the rise of technology could potentially become negative. Now, in some industries, we've already hit it. Like, obviously, with energy, there's also nuclear explosions. But when does AI and computational power reach a kind of negative tipping point? Well, I, 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 I don't think it reaches a tipping point. I mean, I think that we're, we're always on the I think most of the problems that we have today on this planet are are coming are coming from our previous technologies, the technology that we have invented till now. So, so I, I think that most of our problems are technogenic, in the sense that they are derived from our previous inventions. And I would bet that most of the problems we're going to have tomorrow or in the coming years will come from the technologies that we are uh, have invented today and are going to invent tomorrow. So, so every time we make something new, we are creating a whole new set of problems. But I'm of the opinion that the answer to a bad technology is always not less technology, but better technology. Okay, and, so, and do you think that's what's in general happened? So for instance, yes. horses, uh, gave way to cars, which allowed for much more greater productivity. Uh, but of course, there was negative consequences to cars, and now we'll have more fuel-efficient cars, driverless cars, right. and so on. Right. So I think of technology as kind of like thinking made concrete. So like if I was to right now start spouting off some really bad ideas or dumb stuff, you wouldn't counsel me, hey, you need to think less. No, no. The, the 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 proper response to a bad idea is always a better idea. It's not less thinking. And the same it's, thing- it's sort of like a that's a, there's an improv component to that. You know, even if someone starts off an improv with let's call it a bad idea, the only correct response from the other person in the improv is to do yes and and exactly. So this is a yes and. So I'm a yes. I'm imp- technological improviser, and the, and the, the 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 response is always yes and. In fact, the yes part is important because in my book, I, I kind of pretty well – the research pretty well shows that there's – technologies don't ever go extinct. There's, and I've had this thing uh, – Robert Kerwich at Radiolab did this um, challenge because I made the statement, and he said, well, we'll find some. And they had all kinds of people coming in. In every case, I was able to find that technology being made, produced new on the earth today. And that is, and and so so we have not. I mean, there are more people making flint arrowhead points. They're called nappers today. There's more na- There's more arrowheads being made today than there were back uh, ten thousand years ago. Oh my gosh, that's that's a very interesting question. Um... There's no, there is no extinct technology. Nothing. It's gone extinct globally. There's somewhere somebody on the earth today is making all the old technology. What about an old-fashioned typewriter? Absolutely. I even found someone said, "What about like uh, the uh, uh, those circular core memories? You know, the the little ferrite cores. You've ever seen those? So that they're it's like a little uh, a donut-shaped thing with two wires running through." I found a place in Bulgaria where they were making core. Ferrite core memory. There may, there, there well, what, about India, there what about punch cards? What about punch cards for programs? Typewriters. It's what? What about punch cards for programs? Yep. Really? We did an article on Wired about about this guy who had a business just keeping the punch card computers going. Why would he do that? 
Well, because there were people, believe it or not, there were people who are still running punch card computers. Uh, all right. They're legacy things. They're, they, it works for them, and so uh, they don't want to change it. Yeah, that's really interesting. You got me thinking there. Um, so, so okay, so what's – you know, you, you've obviously been involved in so many you're, – you're an idea machine. You've been involved with so many different types of ideas over the years. How have you um, – benefited like what what's been your career arc in terms of uh you know like obviously you haven't started uh, uh the latest facebook or anything like that like what's been your main focus on on your on your career well not that you have to have one i'm not yeah, exactly so I, I can tell you where i started and i can tell you where it ended up and so um um you know, I read the whole Earth catalog, um, which was sort of like what Cool Tools was, but it was it was the web on newsprint. It was pre-web by it was 1969, 1970, but it was the web in the sense that it was user-generated content. It had the blogger voice, which was the informed enthusiast sharing um, cool and neat stuff. And the message I got from that was um, you should invent your life. And, um, you know, with the right tools, anything was possible. You just had to know um, about the possibilities, and there were far more possibilities um, available. If you only looked, you would find them. And I think um, uh, I, for some reason, I had no money, but I had a lot of time. And I took the attitude that I would pretend as if I was a millionaire, even though, like, I had, like, $200. And by that, I meant that I would try and do things imagining that I had all the money to do them because usually people think that the lack of money is the kind of limiting factor in for what they want to do. But that's often and most often not the case. There's usually other things. The lack of money is actually often an asset because it forces you to be innovative and people who have money will try to buy a solution. But because you don't have money, you're forced to invent a solution. And so I would take uh, – I would pretend that um, – I would act as if I was a millionaire even though I you know, had nothing, meaning that I would do things like if I would say, well, what, do I, you know, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? Well, here's – I'll do – you know, I'll, I'll travel to Asia. I'll, I'll, you know, make, I'll build a house. I'll do whatever it is as if I was you know, independently wealthy, and that's the kind of stuff I would do. And um, – my interest was in lifelong learning to trying to do as many different things as I could to try and um, uh, share what I learned. And so I got into the business of writing and photography, which was sharing what I would learn to help other people learn the same way. And I think um, I was lucky in that um, I became interested in um, – these kinds of things. I was around at the right moment when Wired was starting. I was I'd been doing something very similar already in a nonprofit with the Whole Earth catalog. We were doing all this stuff, but it was on newsprint and black and white. Nobody paid any attention. Suddenly we did it in color on Wired and everybody thought it was amazing, even though it was the same world. I just I lucked out to be at this moment when the digital culture and the nerdy stuff I was interested in became mainstream. And I really want to emphasize that, that, that there was an element of luck in that. Um, uh, but, but you know, luck, that saying luck favors the prepared. It, I mean, it, it does. you're it talking does. about a magazine that was created 
12 years or 13 years after you decided that anyone could invent their life and why it was all about that concept. So yeah. you, you had put 12 years in, uh, into that concept for yourself. I, I, it's true. It's true that it does prepare and, and that you, you know, you can't win the lottery unless you buy a ticket. So you want to buy a lot, lots and lots of tickets. You want to try lots of things. You want to be there and be available and work hard when that comes. And that's all part of it. But I also have to say being around uh, Silicon Valley, having dinner with many billionaires, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that there is an element of, of luck. And the, I respect those people who are really successful who also acknowledge that because there really is that element. And um, not to say they aren't wor working hard or brilliant or deserve it, but just that there is certainly um, certainly a matter of, of being in the right place at the right time, but that is often very deliberate where you're kind of maneuvering yourself so that you can at least be in line at that time. Right. So, so they're not necessarily contradictory principles. So, right. so how can like, like, and, and I want to get back to the arc of your career, but how can someone sitting in their cubicle at Procter and Gamble or wherever I, I, I always, I Procter and Gamble is going to sue me eventually because <laughs> I always use them as an example, but I love Crest toothpaste. Don't, <laughs> don't take it personally. Um, how can someone in a cubicle at Procter and Gamble Take listen to this and take those first steps at intersecting yeah. the concepts of inventing their own lives and luck. Yeah. So, um, so I, so, so I was uh, for some reason temperamentally very optimistic, and I often took risks of like you know quitting a job to write a book, um, which is kind of a crazy thing to do because. Um, uh, I didn't have a very large advance. I didn't know how I was going to, you know, I had a family. It was, it was like, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a, that's a risky thing to do or quitting something else to do wired. And, um, I think, and, and, and so, so there, there is a sense in which you have to kind of be willing to gamble. And here's why I was able to do that. It's because I had lived in, um, Asia with almost no money, um, eating, you know, rice in lentils, like that was the diet, Dalbot. And um, I, I lived where I basically I owned a sleeping bag and a camera. That was all that I owned. And so whenever I took a risk, I said, well, what's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen was that I would have to eat lentil and, and rice and live in a sleeping bag. But I've done that. And it wasn't so bad. And so um, – and I built my own house with my own hands. And so having done those things, um, you have to think about what's the worst that could happen. And actually the worst that can happen is, is, is um, actually nowhere near your, your, uh, what you could imagine it is. It's, it's actually not so bad. And if you have lived like that and, and practiced that kind of uh, volunteer simplicity, I think it's kind of – it's like a great exercise to prepare you to take risks because you realize that you would be actually – perfectly happy and i know kids they were sort of they, they sort of like that kind of um uh of you know whatever it is vagabonding that we might have done because we did it later on deliberately and so one of the things i would suggest to the the person in the cubicle and Procter and gamble was learn some l learn what it is that actually is your your minimum um because 
if you are comfortable with that and learn how to be comfortable with that, you can it, it can empower you to take a risk to quit your job or something because maybe you're living you know in a dormitory or maybe you're in a hostel or maybe you're rooming with other people. But but if you can learn how to thrive in that kind of environment, that gives you a great power to to try something risky. It's funny because you mentioned um, money as the limiting factor. And I think that's kind of a top level fear, but then people might, then there's the next layers of fear. Like, Oh, well I might lose my family or people might look down on me as a failure or I might lose my friends. You know, I think people have layers and layers and layers of fears that they have to get through. Yeah. I, I, for some reason I was that never bothered me very much. Um, what what did bother you? Like, what was your during this kind of um, let's call it vagabonding era, yeah, or maybe yeah. later? What was a, a low point where you thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm never going to climb out of what I'm doing here." I actually was. I I, I didn't have a low point. I was perfectly content to li- live out of a sleeping bag and travel around the world and spend uh and climb every i was in every valley in the himalayas um you know i traveled to places that are utterly changed right now i have not a single regret at that time or now so um i i think um uh i i think the maybe the one the one thing that was in my head and this will get to this other part was i felt that i was privileged that I I could leave any of these places because of I had a U.S. passport, whatever it was. I had a family back home, so I was I always had an out, and a lot of the people that I was living with did not. But did you and ever I, get afraid that you wouldn't be able to support your family, for instance? No, no, I didn't because um, I I saw how little it took in these other countries. I I knew I could build my own house. We could grow food. We could eat. I mean, if you if you wanted to go minimum, you could probably live on I don't know a, a, a couple thousand dollars a year in rice and lentil costs, and and make your own toys and and things, and your kids would be perfectly happy. So so I, I so I I knew I mean I didn't buy into any of this kind of the amount of money that requires to have a kid. That's just that's just it's well that's what it costs if you want to do it in the way that everybody does it but that's not not actually what it costs what you need to spend and i have lots of friends i have a friend who has nine kids and they homeschooled all of them and um they had very little money but he had a huge family and so um it's this is what i took away from my time in in asia and being a hippie was that um you don't need very much money so i was never i was never at all concerned with um, not being able to support them because you just, you just shift, you just go into a different mode and live somewhere where it's, I mean, for that matter, we could have afforded a plane ticket to India or somewhere and we could have just lived there for right. as long as we could. It's, it's, I, I think it's a real bogus idea that um, it takes a lot to survive, particularly in this kind of a culture. There's so much fat here Watch the documentary about dumpster diving. You could feed an entire household for nothing with with you know organic food from Trader Joe's, and I'm not kidding. I mean, people do this, and um, yeah, maybe some people will look down at you, but you know, uh, for me, that's I would look up to them. That's really that's you know, you're 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 being you're being innovative. You're you're being creative, and I think um, 
so so I never I never felt that kind of a of of a pressure. I think the one thing that I was concerned with was that I am privileged, and that's what am I doing with my privilege? Am I just sort of like coasting, or am I making am I doing something with this privilege? And that was the one thing that was behind me. It wasn't the fear of failure of you know surviving. It was like the fear that I have been given this privilege and what was I doing with it? And that is comes back to to where I am today, which is um, when you are first starting out in the world and you have your first job, your only concern is like not to screw up. I'm going to do a good job. You know, my first job, I just want to do it well. And then you get to the point where you're doing your job well enough that you begin to think about, well, hey, you know, actually, I would like to, I would like to have a job that I love. You know, so because I'm doing it really well, but now, but now, let me, let me find a job that I could do well and then I'd love. And then, and then if you're really successful or or or, or, or progress further, you'll say, well, um, I want a job that I do well, or I know how to do that, and a job that I love, but a job that pays me really well. And that seems to be kind of like the the peak of like, okay, I've got a job that I love, I do well, and I get paid a lot. But that's actually for me not the final step. The final step is um, I'm going to uh, do something that only I can do because um, if you get to a certain point in life where you have lots of opportunities, there are, turns out to be lots of things that you could um, do well and that you could be paid well. But I think we're here on Earth to do something that no one else could do. And so that's where you get to the power of no where you're basically saying no to things that other people could do. And so um, when someone comes to me with an idea or if I have an idea, the first thing I'm saying to myself is, could anyone else do this? Could anyone else write this book? Can anyone else do this job of this, this talk? And if I could think of someone else to do it, it's like that's something I don't want to do. That's something I don't need to do. So if if I'm doing something and someone else is doing something like it, rather than kind of try and race ahead and do it first, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't need to do that because they're doing it. I only want to do the things that no one else is doing at all, no one else can do, because that is what I'm here for. That takes all your life to kind of get to. Finding out, I mean, that, that's a really hard thing to figure out. Well, what is it that I can do that no one else can do and that I love to do and that is valuable to others? That's a very, very hard thing to do. It kind of takes all your life to, to get there, but I think that's what we're here to find out. That's what our life is about, is finding out what it is and you, we you, could do. You've done so many things. What do you, I mean, it seems like what, what you've done is kind of take these attitudes about freedom to do many things, to show that you can be creative in many different areas and have fun doing them. Like, like you've gone from the book Cool Tools, which is essentially... I'm going to call it a, a, a fascinating techno nerd book like the whole earth catalog from the seventies and eighties. And you've gone from that to doing a graphic novel. Like you've, you've gone from one of my favorite mediums to my next favorite medium. <laughs> well, I, I, I think, um, I think most people would agree that that the silver core could not have been written by anybody else. I mean, it was, just, it's a very, um, you know, this kind of weird combination of, spiritual technological stuff. It's like who who else is writing but nobody's doing that. Well, and it, and it led to all sorts of other questions like, you know, what you call angels could have just been kind of the robots of some prior civilization. Yeah, exactly. You know, it could keep going yeah. back. Like I don't know what you're planning for the sequel, but it could just keep going yeah. back forever. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and, and there's, there's a, I think there's actually a pragmatic uh, aspect to it, which is I really believe that we are going to make robots conscious at some point. And one of them is going to say, I am a child of God and I want to be baptized. And what do we say to them? So I, I think, I, I think, uh, I, I do believe that this is a rehearsal. This will help people rehearse for this, for this time that's coming. So even though there's, you know, the, the whole angel thing is fiction, I think the idea of a conscious robot is not at all fiction. And that um, uh, some of these things that we're exploring in, in this graphic novel will actually um, be questions that we're going to have to answer collectively as, as, a, as a society. So that, that's something that I know that no one else is thinking about right now. So, so I, I, I'm a, I have a practice of telling people everything that I'm thinking about when I'm, when I'm going to do and kinds of areas that I'm kind of noodling around in because I am – because I want to give them away, and I want uh, the the ideas that people can steal. I'm so happy that they steal them and take them and do them, because everyone that is done by somebody else reveals to me that that's something that I don't have to do or need to do. Well, and, and I think that's a very powerful attitude, and I, I believe you even talk about that in the new rules for the new economy. You have a, a great post, which is your top ten rules uh, for the new economy where you know you say follow the free and you say generosity begets wealth and yes. i think that's a very most people do not know that like i actually right, suggest right. something similar like give away your ideas and usually the first question people ask me is well how can i charge then for the ideas and i think that's kind of the backwards way to think about it no it, it is especially in in um in, in this kind of environment, which is uh, a communication idea where anything that can be copied will be copied, what you have to sell, you can't sell copies of things and ideas can easily be copied. So you have to sell things that can't be copied. And those are these intangibles I call generatives that, like trust or authentication mm. or personalization, which can't be stored and have to be generated in the exchange. And, and, and I think that, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, patents and copyrights are, are are of limited value to to an individual, and that um, what you want to do is is either have an idea that's like everyone thinks is a stupid idea at the time, or it's crazy, or it's outrageous, and um, uh, and that you follow through and complete, and then um, when it's done, people say, "Oh my gosh, that's that's amazing." So I think um, giving away, I mean. It's not just giving away your ideas. I think I really believe that you should also be generous with everything else, both money and time, generous in the sense of giving it away without any expectation of of return because every religion in the world would teach the same thing that you'll when you give things away with no expectation of it coming back, it will come back a hundredfold. I mean that's that's the law of the universe, and it's curious how that works. I think there is scientific reasons why it works, but anybody who's been around a while and has done it can verify that that absolutely works. I I totally agree, and um, you know I wanna I kind of wanna uh, close this interview actually with t taking you back to your roots of. Uh, of you know finding those interesting things like like those interesting tools like you did in the whole Earth catalog, but bringing it to your more recent book with cool tools, 
these are tools or toys or objects that have their kind of thousand fans, kind of the, the, mid, the middle of the tail there. What are the coolest tools you think people are working on? And they're not necessarily building them for wealth, but they're building them because they love them. You mean, um, I'm, you mean where are some of the tools that are in the uh, Cool Tools website or the yeah. Cool Tools books? Yeah. Well, you know, um, here, 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 so I, I use the word tools very, very broadly in, in this book. But You, but, you do because you, you include uh, naps, which I find to be the coolest tool of all. You know, taking a nap in the middle of the power, day. Power naps. Yes. Yeah, I'm a big believer in power naps. And and, and the tool there is actually a, a guidebook to how, how to and why to take power naps. And that's the that's the tool aspect. But I, I define tools as kind of anything that's useful or anything that has a handle one in an opportunity on the other. And so it's it's broadly so it could be something as like a technique or it could be like a piece of software, it could be a hand tool, a power tool, it could be a map, it could be a how to guidebook. It could be anything that is really useful. And so um, there are a couple of tools that we used actually to make the uh, Cool Tools book, which is a best of um, 10 years of a website where every day, every weekday, we run a rave review. All the reviews that we run are all positive. They're not negative. They're all positive reviews. They're recommendations, basically. And we took uh, took the best out of those of 10 years and put them into this book. It's a very oversized book about the size of a towel when you open it up. I mean, it's really huge. And um, it's filled with this uh, a jumble of um, tools that sort of um, start to link to each other in your head as you're looking at them. And the tools range from like, you know, the best uh, um, power drill to um, a really cool come along that you can actually um, uh, uh, use for millimeter precision to um, other things like a deck of cards by Brian Eno that, that, that help you get unstuck when you're trying to be creative. I'm going to get that. I didn't even know that exists. That's called oblique strategies. And what they are, the, these little things that will say like, um, take the middle and extend it. Um, um, what would what would you do if you were if this was in Africa? I mean, there's just all kinds of things where he's he's he helps you get unstuck when when you're when you're stuck in being creative. You have these kind of lateral prompts that are really very very powerful, and that's called oblique strategies. It also works as an app on your phone. So some of the books, some of the tools that we use to make the book, I think, are kind of tool are interesting for others. And one of the ones that I recommend, and I wish I had known about, I wish I had thought about when I was younger was I was a very do-it-yourself person. That's the whole whole earth catalog, building my own house. You know, I have a chicken coop that built up here. You know, I, I make stuff myself I'm very much into the make magazine thing, but I took that to kind of an extreme and I didn't really realize, and I should have realized that you can actually hire people, hire experts to get things done. And I sort of have, you know, in the last 10 years, I've sort of understood that. So I now readily hire people and I do it, with like Elance. And I think Elance is one of the most powerful tools because you can do a kind of a task project based bid and get really, really good people for very reasonable prices and have them work very, very quickly. Yes. And I use Elance for all kinds of things now. The real trick is specifying the job. But if you can do that, you, you can just 
I mean, uh, you, you you can get so much really great work, and it's a win-win because people on the other side who are wanting to do this, they're happy to to do it. They're not gonna they're gonna accept only things that, where they're making what they consider enough money, and you are getting the work done really fast and really great. And that is a, it's a little marketplace for uh, two-way marketplace for for people who need work done and people who want to work, and it's really powerful. So if you're whatever you're doing, I suggest you look at Elance as a way to kind of delegate and become more productive. And that's one example of a great tool. I, I would say that's an incredibly value valuable tool. I mean, uh, I built entire businesses through Elance that were you could build the businesses for a couple thousand dollars and sell them obviously for, for much greater amounts, uh, uh, using, you know, programmers. And I would have, I would use Elance to find programmers in India, uh, uh, copywriters in Poland, designers in Malaysia, and all put them together into a team. It's a, it's yeah, an amazing exactly. thing. Yeah. We, 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 uh, you know, cool tools was 464 pages, oversized pages. We proofed it, had proofreaders proofing it in 48 hours. And so part of the advantage of Elance is actually you can parallelize it and actually do it really, really fast. Yeah. It's, it's the speed as well. So, yeah, we've had, um, you know, I, okay, so like I'm a photographer and I was doing something. Uh, okay. And, and all the images in the book, we took images off the web. We wanted the backgrounds removed so, so that we could kind of float it against the, the page color. So there was like thousands of images that had to have the background removed in Photoshop. We had people doing it for 30 cents an image. It's mm. like that's crazy, and they just did them so fast, and they were so good, um, and they were so happy to do it that um, it would take us like I don't know years to do it ourselves or yeah. anyone. So, so that just amplifies you. So that's one kind of of a, of a tool that I would recommend that I wish I'd known when I was younger was you can actually hire people, competent people for reasonable prices to get you to make yourself more productive and. Um, I think that's that's something I wish I'd known when I was younger. You know, Kevin, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've been such a fan of your your work for so long, and, and I've blatantly stolen many of your ideas over the years. So thank you. Uh, well, I am very so much. happy, and and I hope I had more stuff to say that people want to steal. And um, I really appreciate. I'm I'm a fan of your own uh, this podcast, I should say, and uh, um, I really appreciate the time to. Talk about stuff that I love, and, and I um, love your positive spirit as well. And I definitely recommend The Silver Cord. It's one of the best things I've read in a long time. And uh, uh, when do you think the sequel will come out? Well, the sequel is dependent on whether we have fans demand it. And you know, maybe this was a Kickstarter-funded um, project. The, this is, again, a, it, the book itself is an amazing artifact. It's beautifully printed. It's huge. It weighs five pounds. It's bigger than any. Graphic. You like those big books. Ever since yeah, the right, Whole right. Earth catalog, you yeah, love right. big books. Right. It's, it's like unlike any. Don't think of a little tiny thin little comic, but this is a huge art book. And um, it was Kickstarted uh, funded. So um, if we have enough fans and interest from this book, um, then we would consider uh, kickstarting the, the third volume. Um, this is volumes one and two. Um, so it depends. On, so, so you know, if, if the fans are out there and the fans want it, then it'll happen. So uh, if you get the book on Amazon, the silver cord and enjoy it, um, write us, leave a message saying you want more and then we'll do it.
That's great. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me. It's been great having you on, on the podcast. It was a pleasure being here, and thanks for the privilege. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.